Well, good morning. It's a new year, which means we have two new series that are starting today. This evening, I hope you'll come back, especially our young people, our college students who are still home and haven't started back to school yet. We are beginning a series on Sunday nights called Transitions. We're going to look at the transition tonight to adulthood. And over the course of that series, look at our transitioning into marriage, divorce, uh, death, the golden years. And so I hope that you'll be back for that on Sunday evenings. But this morning, we're getting into our new series that will last the entire year, His Word. And there have been devotional books available. I think we still have some available. If not, we have ordered some that uh, you can find out in the lobby. Uh, you can go to JenkinsInstitute.com and, and get a copy there. But it's a devotional series that we're going to look at throughout the year as we seek to dig deeper into God's Word. What a novel concept, right? That the church should be great Bible students, but we're going to try to encourage that this year more than ever. How many of you made some New Year's resolutions? Probably a few, right? My guess is those New Year's resolutions focused on being better in some way because that's what they usually focus on. Right, we're going to be healthier, we're going to exercise more, we're going to stop doing some things, and we're going to start doing some other things. And I hope you stick with them. But the truth is, you probably won't. Because we just don't. What is made with so much ardor and diligence on January the 1st, quickly is met with lethargy and negligence, right? Because human beings find change difficult. We just do. Have you made a resolution to be spiritually fit this year? How many of you made a spiritual New Year's resolution? Hopefully all of you and you're just embarrassed to raise your hand. Let me ask you this. How many of you get bored reading the Bible? It's okay. You can answer honestly. I'll let you skate this time. How many of you get bored with studying the Bible? You know, oftentimes we sit down with so much enthusiasm to get deeper into God's Word to start the new year, and we say we're going we're gonna to start a Bible reading plan, or we're going to just pick up in Genesis and go through the Bible in a year, or maybe twice in a year, and we have this excitement, and we sit down, and we go through it for a couple of days, and all of a sudden we lose interest. It's kind of like the critic who was asked to review the phone book. He said, great cast of characters, horrible plot. And that's kind of how some people approach the Bible. Great cast of characters, I don't understand the plot. It's confusing, it doesn't make sense to so many people. But if you're bored with the Bible, let me suggest to you that maybe the reason that you're bored with the Bible is that you haven't had a lot of direction in the past. Maybe it's confusing to you because you need some, you need some tools or some helpful hints to help you get started. And so that's what we hope that we accomplish, not only this morning, but throughout this year, is to help you be better Bible students. I want you to consider me this year your strength coach. Have you seen these videos on social media where a football team is in an off-season workout, and one of the teammates is trying to lift a considerable amount of weight, maybe even a personal record, and they get under the bench press, for instance, and all his teammates are circled around, ready to cheer him on and support him, and he finally struggles to get that weight lifted, and everybody gets excited, and they get around him, and they cheer, and they hug on him, and that's what it's going to be for you, hopefully, spiritually this year. I'm your strength coach. 
your teammates are all around you, and we're encouraging you, and we're going to get you excited, hopefully, about studying the Bible. But that, that's the thing. I'm not the only one involved in this process. You have a big stake in this. And if you want this to be successful, you're going to have to invest. You're going to have to be all in to say, I'm going to do what is required of me this year to dig deeper. I'm going to listen during the sermon. I'm going to study the devotional book during the week. And I'm going to dig deeper. God has spoken. Are you listening? Here's something else. Where we need to start with all of this is changing our diet. Because no fitness plan, whether it be physical or spiritual, is worth its salt if you don't follow it with good nutrition. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do starting today in the new year and to continue it throughout this year and hopefully for the rest of your life, and that is this. Cut out the junk food. You know why you're bored with the Bible? Because you're not hungry. You have been binging on Netflix and social media and television and sports and hobbies and all these other things, and at the end of the day, you're not hungry. When it comes to changing your diet spiritually, you got to chunk out, you got to chunk the junk food, you got to get rid of it and be willing to eat healthier. I'm not demanding that you be a teetotaler. I'm not saying that you have to completely get rid of all of those things. They just need to have their place. You binge watch on Netflix or Prime Video or whatever it is. You spend all your time at the baseball field and come home that night and you've got to squeeze in Bible study and prayer when you're already tired. It shouldn't be that way. At some point, this has got to take priority. When is the church ever winning in your life? Because it can't lose every day. It can't lose to Netflix and to hobbies and to sports and everything else. It's got to win at some point. Cut out the junk food. Or at least greatly reduce it. This is hard. Some of you may be thinking that, well, that's difficult. Yeah, it is. It's tough. It's hard to eat a carrot after you filled up on a Snickers. The junk food always tastes better. That's why it has such an attraction. So this is going to take some effort on your part. This is going to take some due diligence. The solution is really easy. It's just not easy to put into practice. Put away the cell phone, turn off the computer, DVR the game, maybe even declare a fast or a cleanse. But when you realize that your diet is made up mostly of junk food, then you must be willing to get healthy. So get your attention span focused on spiritual things First, you've got to commit to that change before you can ever expect anything else to change in your life. If you want this endeavor to work, then you've got to be willing to change your diet. It's like the person who uh, decides in the coming year that they want to get healthy, and so they join a fitness club, and they, they go up there, and they set the treadmill at a certain pace. And you know that cup holder on the treadmill where you put your water bottle? Well, they think that's for their Pringles can. And so they put their Pringles can there, and they, they, they eat the Pringles while they're running at a slow pace on the treadmill. And they get done after about 30 minutes and feel like they've done their time. And they go home and, and fry them up a chicken fried steak smothered with gravy. And it, it just doesn't work that way. You've got to follow spiritual fitness and exercise with a solid diet. 
nutrition and exercise go hand in hand. And that is nowhere more true than when it comes to our spiritual health. We can't have optimal results unless we're willing to cut out the junk food. You ever gotten a gift that was too much work? Maybe some of you who are older understand what I'm talking about. You've never had an iPhone. Your kids get you an iPhone, and they're so excited for you to have an iPhone, you're thinking, I, I don't want this thing. It's too much work. It's intimidating. I've got, I've got a learning curve here that I, I don't really want to engage in. By the time I figure it out, I'll be dead. <laughs> Whether it's a drone or one of those high-tech TVs, have you ever gotten a gift that you look at it and you say, wow, that's, that's intimidating. That's just a lot of work. And I don't know that I want to invest the time in that. Sometimes we get a gift, and the only way that we really want to receive it is if the giver goes along with it. You know, if I had the giver to go along with it to show me how to do this and to walk me through it, that would be great. Some people feel that way about the Bible. They get a Bible for Christmas, they've never really opened it, and they think, wow, this is pretty intimidating. I wish I had somebody to guide me through it. That's, that's what I hope to do this year. Many of you don't need that. Some of you do. And so look at this as an opportunity to grow spiritually and get more spiritually fit and invest in it. And, and through the year, we're going to give you some tips and some pointers to help you in understanding the Bible better. And we're going to do that this morning, at least for part of the lesson. Really got two devotional lessons this morning. The first one is, the first part of it is looking at how we can be better Bible students and giving you a few tips. And the second part is looking at the passage in, in Matthew chapter 1. What I'm going to give you this morning, if you want to take a picture with your cell phone up on the screen or maybe take some notes, I would encourage you to do so. It comes from two guys by the name of J. Scott Duvall and J. Daniel Hayes, Arkadelphia, Arkansas. So they've got to be good people, right? And you can read more about this method in the book that they put out. It's called Grasping God's Word. But here's just a short summary that I would like for you to at least consider and try to employ when you study the Bible. The first point is to grasp the text in their hometown. So when you're studying a passage of scripture, a chapter or several chapters, you're first looking at grasping the text in their hometown. You've heard me say it over and over again. The Bible was not written to you. It was written for you, but you're not the original audience. So look at the original audience. See who this was intended for. Look at that original audience and consider the context, because that's everything. Get the bigger picture. One thing that Christians really have a bad habit of doing is plucking out certain passages or verses in, in isolation and making them stand alone, proof texting your way through the Bible. That is horrible, horrible Bible interpretation. It's a horrible way to read the Bible. Don't do that. Don't proof text, don't, don't pull out your passage here or there and make it stand by itself. Consider everything around that passage. And what did it mean to the original audience? You've heard me say before, there are no direct commands, meaning that there are no commands directly to you. They were to an original audience. What did it mean for the original audience, right? Secondly, measure the width of the river to cross. What are the differences between the original audience and us? Under consideration would be culture, circumstances, language, time. How wide is the river that has to be crossed here? Give you a for instance. 
The river in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is pretty wide. What in the world does head coverings have to do with us here today? So in order to properly answer that question, you have to consider everything surrounding that passage. And then you cross the bridge. You cross the principal bridge. You try to find the principle that applies to you in this day and time. We move from identifying the differences between us and the original audience to defining the similarities. What things do we have in common? What things are similar? Most of the time, there is a broader theological principle, and we're looking for that principle that relates those similarities between us and the original audience. In other words, we're looking for the theological message. Now, it's important to note that the principle must be reflected in the text. You don't get to have license to just produce your own principle. This principle must be timeless and not tied to a specific situation. So in the case of head coverings in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we find no direct command or binding example that applies to us in this day and age. But what we do find is a principle there. You can look at it sometime. You find a principle of male headship there. Then you consult the biblical map. How does this principle fit with the rest of the Bible? And if it doesn't, it's not a good principle. You've reached a dead end. You need to go somewhere else, right? Because it needs to fit with the rest of the Bible. If it doesn't, then it has no meaning for us. If we have discovered a valid principle, then it should fit cohesively with the rest of Scripture. So when we're looking at the Old Testament, for instance, we have to filter whatever we find there through the New Testament. Because we're New Testament Christians. That's who we are, right? Take the uh, example of worship. We are not under the Mosaic regime. We are not Jews. So Old Testament worship does not apply to New Testament Christians. However, there are some principles involved with Old Testament worship that are timeless and that transfer to New Testament worship, like reverence, like awe, the fact that God is the authority, the fact that He is the one that calls the shots, and so therefore we do as He tells us to do and not as we want to do, right? And so we look at these things through the filter of the New Testament because that's who we are. We're New Testament Christians under a new covenant. And then finally, we should grasp the text in our town. You know, the first point was to grasp the text in their hometown. Now we grasp it in our town. What does it mean for us today? You have heard me talk about the, the four points of Bible study, observation, interpretation, meditation, and application. You can do all the observing you want. You can do all the praying you want. You can do all the interpreting that you think is necessary. But if you don't apply it, you have failed in Bible study. Because at the end of the day, Bible study should result in answering a question. And that question is, so what? So what? What does this mean for me today? How does this apply to my life? We have to answer that question or else our study fails. So how do the principle or principles that we have found in the text apply to me? How does this affect my life? Now, I hope that doesn't make your brain hurt. I hope that doesn't bring up more questions than answers. Hopefully that helps you in some way. Some of you may be sitting back thinking, you know, this, this is a lot of work. I mean, if, if I'm going to do this every time I consult a passage, that's a lot of work. And to you, I would say, absolutely, it's a lot of work. 
That's our problem in the religious world. That's the problem in the church is that we don't know God like we should because we don't know his word like we should. We want to hear a professor tell us what we need to believe or the preacher tell us what we need to believe or an elder tell us what we need to believe. We want to read a couple of books and think we know something. You've got to do the hard work. You've got to dig in because God has spoken. And it is our duty to figure out everything possible that God has said, has said to us. It is our responsibility to do our very best, our dead-level best, to understand what God is saying. And you can't do that by plucking a couple verses here and there and making them stand on their own or deciding that, you know, whatever that guy says, yeah, what he says, I'll go with him. That's not how this works. So it is hard work. Now, let's get into our text for this morning. Shift gears. Matthew chapter 1. This week, if you did your reading from His Word... It took the section of scriptures, Matthew chapter 1 through chapter 5, right? We're going to dwell this morning on Matthew chapter 1 and the genealogy of Jesus, okay? So let's read that, starting in verse 1. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Jacob was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam was the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asa. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Ammon, and Ammon the father of Josiah. Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Abihud, and Abihud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor. Azor was the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad. Eliad was the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. Man, spell check was going nuts when I put that in my notes. And hold your applause. I know you want to congratulate me on getting all those names right. But when you look at the genealogy of Jesus, you find a lot of names in there that are hard to pronounce. You find some, some familiar names, but you also find some names that maybe you don't recognize. And you may be thinking to yourself, why in the world, out of all the chapters you could have picked from for the study this morning, why would you pick 
Matthew chapter 1 and the genealogy of Jesus? Why would that be the section of Scripture that you choose? I mean, it's just a list of names, right? Not so fast. There's a whole lot here to uncover. A whole lot from a passage that we usually just skim over because we think it has no meaning for us. I think one of the things that stands out loud and clear and something that you see from this passage, the bigger picture of it all is this. Jesus had roots. He had roots. He had a family tree. He had a lineage. He had a pedigree. Some of you who are a little older might remember the TV miniseries Roots. If you remember, that is the the story of Alex Haley, who was an African-American man who set out to discover where he came from. And all he really knew was that he was a descendant of an African slave by the name of Kente. With only a little information to go on, Haley starts piecing together his ancestry and eventually makes a trip over to Gambia and he visits tribe after tribe and listens to the tribal historians tell the story. And the story was something like so-and-so married so-and-so and they had such-and-such kids and they went into battle. It was things like that. And as he traveled around, he eventually was listening to one tribal historian who was saying, so-and-so came first, he married so-and-so, they had X number of children, they lived so many years. And as this tribal historian was mentioning their lineage, he talked about how so-and-so had a son in such-and-such year, and that son was taken away, never to be seen again. And Alex Haley asked the question, he said, what was his name? And the response was Kunta Kinte. And so it all began to make sense. He began to piece it all together. And he said this, he said, I came to realize that I had roots. I had a history. My family came from somewhere. And that's the message of Matthew chapter 1. That Jesus had roots. That he came from somewhere. Yes, we know that he came from God, that he came from heaven. But he had roots. There is a genealogy here. He had a family. Now you have to understand that Jews were fascinated with pedigrees. They loved lineage. They loved ancestry. So much so that if they discovered that you had even the slightest bit of foreign blood coursing through your veins, you could not be considered a Jew. If you wanted to be a priest... You had to produce a pedigree that went all the way back to Aaron, and it had to be pure. If it wasn't pure, you were not allowed to be a priest. Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience. So we talk about the original audience. The original audience is a Jewish audience. And so it makes sense that Matthew is including a lineage here, the lineage of Jesus, that that talks about the royal line. You know, you get over to Luke, he has, a, he has a, a genealogy as well. It's called the regal line. This one's called the royal line because Luke connects Jesus to all mankind by taking him back to Adam. That wasn't Matthew's purpose for his lineage. He's taking it back to Abraham and the rise of David, two of the greatest figures in Jewish history. And so... Jews were obsessed with pedigrees, with lineage. And Matthew's genealogy is important because it tells a story. 
What's really interesting is that it's broken up into three sections with each section representing three monumental stages in Jewish history. Did you catch it when you were going through it? It's the first section involves from Abraham to David and signifies the rise of Israel's greatest king. The second section goes from David to Israel's exile. And the third section moves from deportation to the Messiah. And each section includes 14 names. Did you catch that? And the reason why is because Matthew wanted to make this lineage easy to remember. Because people weren't walking around with bound books hot off a printing press that they could consult. And so Matthew's goal was to make this easy to comprehend and to memorize. Because if you were going to remember something, that's how you had to do it. Again, you didn't have bound books. So within this genealogy, Matthew tells the story of kingship, of exile, and restoration. And here's the thing. Isn't that the story of every one of us? Every one of us find our place in that story. Every Christian finds in place, their place in the story of kingship, exile, and restoration. We were born for greatness, but we destroyed that greatness through sin. However, thanks be to God that a Savior came to restore that greatness. And that's Matthew's big purpose for writing the gospel that he did. His bigger picture is of God and Israel and how it all points to the Messiah. The theme of Matthew's gospel is threefold. Number one, to show that Jesus is from the line of David. Number two, to show that Jesus is a new Moses. And number three, to show that Jesus is Emmanuel or God with us. It's a beautiful story. And it's showing the story of Israel, but not just the story of Israel, our story. Because we fit into this when we become a Christian, right? Matthew attaches Jesus to the Old Testament from the very beginning, right at the very front of the New Testament. Matthew starts by saying, here's the Old Testament and here's what it leads to. Here's the connection of Jesus to all those who talked about him before. How beautiful is that? Now, that's the setup and that's important. The history of it is important. But there's more, right? Did you notice some names in this lineage that were a little curious? Surely as you read it or you heard me reading it, you noticed some names that really didn't seem to fit, right? Four, at least, anyway, to me, that I noticed. First, you have Tamar, right? You can read up on her story in Genesis chapter 38. She was the daughter-in-law of Judah, who was the son of Jacob, the grandson of Abraham, but what's really pertinent to Tamar's story is that she was a Gentile who married Judah's son, Ur. Ur passed away, and his brother Onan took her as his wife, but he passed away as well, leaving Tamar without a husband and without children, which were a, a double curse in that day and time. And because Tamar would not rely on God and let him work in her life, she decided to dress herself up like a prostitute and seduce her father-in-law. She became pregnant, giving birth to twin boys, Perez and Zerah. And so you have this woman, Tamar, who is nothing more than really a footnote in biblical history, a scandalous footnote at that. Her story is filled with deception, lust, greed, sexual immorality, and a hint of incest. So you have Tamar, and then you have Rahab. We all know who Rahab is. If you don't know who she is, just Read about her in the Bible sometime because she's always listed with a title. 
right? Rahab the prostitute. Rahab the harlot, right? One of her most momentous times in her life was when she lied. And so we have this prostitute mentioned here. She was also a Canaanite, which made her a hated enemy of the Israelites. And her, like I said, defining moment was telling a lie. Yet she's included in the lineage. Then we have Bathsheba. We know Bathsheba, right? She is known as for committing adultery with, with David and a very uh, royal cover-up to go along with it as her husband Uriah was set up to be killed by David. Don't miss the point, though. She's on the list. And then you have Ruth. When there's no scandal associated with Ruth, except the fact that she was a woman, and Jews did not typically include women in their lineage. So you have that. Then you have the fact that she is a Moabite who was a nation born out of incest, and the, the Jews hated the Moabites and wanted nothing to do with them. It was bad enough or unusual enough to include a woman in your lineage, but then to include a Moabite woman, well, that was just unheard of. So let's take inventory of what we have here. Listed among the names in Jesus' genealogy are Tamar, a woman associated with incest, pseudo-prostitution, sexual immorality, and a Gentile. You have Rahab, a woman known for prostitution and lying as well as being a Canaanite. You have Bathsheba, a woman known for adultery and scandal. You have Ruth, a hated Moabite, a nation born out of incest. Three are Gentiles. Three are involved in some sort of sexual immorality. Two are involved in prostitution. One is an adulteress. All four are in the line of the Messiah. Why? Why would you do that? Especially considering that Jews typically would not include every name in their lineage if it was a name that was unsavory. Why do you think these names are included in the lineage of the Messiah of all people? Well, I think for two reasons. First, I think because God was speaking to self-righteous people. The Holy Spirit is speaking to self-righteous people. Remember the audience in Matthew's gospel. The original audience were the Jews and the Jewish leaders who were notorious for being self-righteous and judgmental. And this is a way for God kind of to thumb his nose at them and say, yeah, look, you all have some dysfunction. You better not get too full of yourself. Look at the Messiah. Look at the unsavory people in his lineage. The religious leaders, the Pharisees, wrote the book on self-righteousness. They were professionals at being judgmental. And the fact that Jesus' family tree was messy and filled with murderers and thieves and harlots and liars and adulterers would not have set well with the religious elite, and that was the point. But secondly, this lineage is a record of God's grace. This is not a gallery of sinless saints. I mean, Solomon was a polygamist. Manasseh was an evil king. Abraham lied. We could go on and on with the other names in the list. Jesus is the Messiah born into this world to save the very kind of people found in his own family tree. Jesus came from sinners, and he came for sinners. That should stop us in our tracks. And make us think. Not only that, Jesus came to bring hope. I realize Jesus came to seek and save the lost, that he came to die for our sins, but above all, he came to bring hope. That's how we fit in this story. We have hope 
through Jesus, the Messiah. People like you and me, the black sheep, can find our place in the family of God. Because Jesus, because of Jesus, we can experience the same faith as Rahab. Because of Jesus, we can have the same hope as Abraham, as David, as Solomon, and Ruth, and all those that are mentioned here. Jesus knows all about embarrassing family members. He wants us anyway. The broken, the messed up, that's who he wants in his family. Because of Jesus, we can all know about forgiveness and being included in the family of God. Did you ever have that debate when you were a kid with your friends about, you know, my dad can beat up your dad? You know, you're so proud of your dad. Yep, you'd have that debate with your friends. My dad can beat up your dad. Maybe you had a sibling that you really didn't much like, but somebody else talked about him, you're ready to fight. Maybe you had a family member that was famous. And maybe they're like your fifth or sixth cousin, but you still name-dropped every chance you got. Maybe you had that family member that, uh, that no one really talked about. You'd go to a family reunion and he or she would show up and everybody kind of get quiet. There was a lot of baggage associated with them and no one really wanted to talk about it. Your parents would whisper about them so that you couldn't hear, but you knew that they were talking about something unsavory in their life. We all have black sheep in our family. Maybe you're the black sheep in your family. But we all know about dysfunction. None of us have a pure pedigree. None of us. None of us have a lineage that is pure. So where does that leave us? Well, we all want to come from good stock. We all want our family tree to bear good fruit. But the truth of the matter is, all of us have a family tree with a few limbs that we would like to prune. I think what we see from the lineage of Jesus is that black sheep have a place. You know, if we were to do our family tree, if we were to trace our lineage, and we were to put it down for everyone to see, we might be tempted not to include some names. There'd probably be some people in that lineage we wouldn't want to kind of draw attention to. We might just conveniently leave them out. But the Holy Spirit-inspired gospel of Matthew doesn't do that. And that tells us something. It tells us that we have a place in the family. Chris McCurley has a place in the family of God. Yes, even though I'm broken, messed up, rebellious, I can find my place in God's household, and you can too, because here's something that you cannot deny, and it's the big takeaway from our message this morning, and it is this. If God can use a murderer, a prostitute, a liar, and an adulterer to bring the Messiah into the world, then don't you think he can bring a black sheep like you and me into his fold? I certainly think so. And so I don't, I don't know where you're at this morning to start the new year. You may have a spiritual resolution that I'm going to keep going down the right track. I'm on a good path. I'm just going to keep doing better. I'm going to raise the spiritual bar a little bit and keep doing better. You may not even be on the path. You may be so far from the path, you can't even see it. You may be on the wrong path. You may need to do a U-turn. God allows U-turns. Whatever your need this morning, we want to help you. We want to help you be on the right path, going in the right direction. You may have two feet on the ground, but you need to have two eyes toward heaven, focusing on that goal and remembering where it is. 
that we all want to end up someday. Cut out the junk food, dig deeper, and let us help you. Come as we stand and as we sing.